Hello and welcome to episode 425 of the Crate and Crowbar, a gaming podcast being recorded on the 23rd of September 2023. I'm Marsh Davis and tonight I form an elite tri-national pod team that operates from the shadows with none other than Jamie Britton. Hello. And Tom Francis. Hello. Welcome, gentlemen. We've had a little bit of a break recently because I was traveling back to my homeland, but um, we've back, come back together now due to the very pressing need uh, to celebrate the life and works of John Ricciatiello. Uh, I know you <laughs> both agree that he's a really swell guy, and it's just so nice to see him thriving. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Tom, do you, do you have any words of praise for the great man and I assume your personal hero, John Ricciatiello? <laughs> I have not really tried to dig into who exactly is responsible for the recent bullshit with, with Unity. There's, um, uh, I think, a lot to investigate and understand there. I've heard a lot of different theories about you know, the, which shadowy forces behind it are uh, responsible for the recent thing. But the recent thing is that uh, a couple of weeks ago, they announced that um, they were adding what they call a runtime fee uh, to, uh, that they're going to bill developers for who are using Unity. And this would be a cost uh, of something like 20 cents per install of your game. And th this was weird and surprising and terrible on very many different levels <laughs> all at once. It was actually, it, uh, I won't say they almost got away with it, but I'll say that they, they sort of managed to distract from the really nasty part of it by just making such a confusing proposition in the first place that like about half of the discussion I saw was just about the install part of it. Like, wait, installs? You're charging us every time someone installs the game? And initially they actually said like, yeah, if someone installs it, then they uninstall it, then they reinstall it. We charge you again. <laughs> and uh, you'd get charged for, um, you know, every install if you're uh, like a Game Pass game and, and it's being installed by millions of people for which you get no money per copy, but you're still being billed per copy. Um and there's, you know, we could do a whole podcast on the weirdness of the install thing. I'm going to skip right over that because it was <laughs> uh, fucking surreal. Um, but the really shitty and, and, and to me, scary part, because uh, the, the game I'm working on is in Unity, um, was that it was retroactive in, in one sense. Um, there, there was a sense in which it wasn't retroactive that they uh, took great pains to spell out. But the sense in which it's retroactive is that uh, this is not a new fee for the new version of Unity. It's a fee that you are obliged to pay if you are using Unity at all in any capacity, even if your game is already out and made in a previous version of Unity, which had very different terms when you develop the game. Basically, as long as you are paying them any money at all to use Unity, which you must do to legally you know, patch your game, do anything, work, work either on your previous games or on future games, uh, you, all of your previous games that have used Unity would be on the hook to to pay them per install. And the terms, like the actual like monetary sort of risk of this or the sort of the cost that it would shake out to for me and, and for most people is kind of nothing because there is a huge um, sort of uh, a threshold under which they don't charge this. So you only, ch you only pay this if you've, uh, I think, sold a million copies total and have made a million dollars in the last year and then and even then they don't charge you for any of those installs they charge you for any installs over that so your first million dollars is free um and uh or maybe it's your first million installs is free and then after that uh they start to bill you this 20 cents thing so the actual like real concrete uh bottom line w wouldn't have been that scary for for me or, or for uh, most of the people who um uh who i know 
But uh, the scary thing is that the retroactive part, the fact that like after we already committed to Unity and invested in it, they can just change not just the price of the thing, but just the very nature of the deal. Just the fact that, you know, most of us went with Unity because it's you pay a subscription normally. Um, and they take none of your revenue, as opposed to Unreal Engine, which takes 5% of your revenue, uh, but no subscription. And so uh, we all committed to Unity on the understanding that they would take none of our revenue. And then suddenly they're saying they can take our revenue and uh, and they're willing to just sort of spring that on us uh, without seemingly caring about the fact that everyone is going to be furious about this. Like the extent to which Unity did slash could have foreseen this outrage is a little bit debatable in that for sure they knew that it would cause a load of outrage. Did they know it would cause this much outrage? I feel like you have to have known that. <laughs> like it would be, you'd be an absolute <laughs> idiot not to know that. Certainly, I think it, it's it's fair to say people within Unity knew that. <laughs> Whether the the p- people who were actually making the decisions knew it would be this bad, um, uh, it now seems that maybe they didn't because there was a week or so of uncertainty and and uh, sort of hand wringing and and uh, flip flopping. And them carving out all these different exceptions and saying, <laughs> the funniest part was like, they said, oh, don't worry about the Game Pass thing because we're going to build the distributor. So we'll, we'll build Microsoft for how many people have installed. <laughs> and they're like, uh, have you checked? Because <laughs> I don't think Microsoft agreed to this. And I think you're going to have a hard time getting them to. Um, so it's just an absolute like shit show of just ill-conceived nonsense, but with this really sinister sort of um, strategy behind it of we can just change the terms of this deal and people like me can't get out of it. Like we are five years deep, nearly six years deep on Tactical Breach Wizards. We can't switch engines at this point. It would be years of work to switch engines. It's just not practical. And so we have to just pay whatever Unity decide they're going to bill us. And they could say, I mean, my, my big fear is if they're willing to do this and they don't give a shit about the scale of backlash, this is inevitably going to cause, completely foreseeably going to cause, uh, what wouldn't they do? Why would they not next year say, now we take 100% of your revenue? Like, they obviously no one would use Unity again if they possibly could, but that's already true. <laughs> like, this deal is bad enough that everyone's already like, I'm never using Unity again. <laughs> and in the meantime, they get 100% of the revenue of things like Among Us and, you know, huge games. Um, and so it would just be like a scam, full, full like, uh, brazen scam, but a scam that would, in the short term, make a bunch of money from anyone who didn't want to break the law um, and who just literally needed to use Unity to to update their game, even just to sort of transition it away from Unity. You would need to keep using Unity for a while. And during that time, they are entitled to just take all your revenue. And that is a terrifying possibility. Um, it, does, it doesn't sound like something that would be legal, though, for Unity. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of questions about whether whether what they did announce is legal. Um, a lot of people saying it's not legal in certain countries. Um, my uh, former... Uh, slash maybe current lawyers, <laughs> Sheridans in the UK. They were my UK lawyers, but I don't live in the UK anymore, so I don't know if I'll actually ever use them again. Um, but they did a post uh, that sort of broke down some of the legal risks of this, of like the various UK laws under which it could be challenged. Um, if it had gone ahead, I am sure some legal action would have started. Who knows how it would have worked out. Um, but yeah, if they, obviously if they did ramp it up to, we take 100% of your revenue, that is more openly criminal. <laughs> and uh, hopefully that would have... Uh, you know, courts would have moved on that, and it would have been just just the incentive uh, to to prosecute that or shut it down or, or do whatever to to stop that would have been greater. So there there is a sort of practical difference between those two things. But yeah, on paper, the legality of uh, of changing the terms of a contract after um, after someone's committed is you know was a, a frightening possibility and. 
the reason, you know, if you're wondering how is this at all legal, how does it even get off the ground? It's because it's a subscription-based thing. So, uh, you know, because I've, I've already agreed to a previous Unity Terms of Service that says, oh, you can keep using the Terms of Service for the version of Unity that you build your game in forever. That's in our Terms of Service. We'll guarantee that. And then that's no longer the case. They can change that again because it's a subscription. Because with a subscription, uh, I have to agree to the new Terms of Service every time I pay them. And uh, I, if they change the Terms of Service, I must agree to the new one to keep paying them. I have to keep paying them to keep legally using their their thing. So it doesn't really matter what they said in the past. They can just change it in the future. Whereas with something like Unreal, Unreal has a perpetual license. So when you agree to it, you are agreeing to this eternal contract that can never be changed. Um, and if, if Unity was, say, $10,000 to buy and then it's yours forever, that would, again, be a thing where the terms of service you agree to at the time, you're safe because they can't make you agree to new terms of service because they're not there's no carrot on the end of the stick. There's nothing that, that you need from them anymore. Whereas with a subscription thing, I have to keep paying them because that's the only way I can legally use the software. That was already true in the old terms of service. So I must keep paying to use it. And to keep paying, I must agree to the new terms of service. So it's this weird little trap that had never occurred to me that they would be able to exploit. Um, but I should skip to, to the end because um, uh, all of this is kind of irrelevant because uh, they it's not irrelevant, actually, but, but they have walked it back. They have... Uh, I had friends who had had calls for the Unity and talked to them in person about it, and they really got the impression that they weren't going to walk this back, that they were pretty committed. And I, my big fear, we kind of knew some changes were coming. They, they said, oh, we're going to clarify this. We're going to change it a bit. My big fear was it was just going to be a bunch of new little exceptions. Like they'd already said, like, okay, charity things are exempt from this. And, and probably Game Pass, they would have figured something out there and just said, like, no, we'll just waive the fee or whatever. Um, and just a few more things like that, which wouldn't, change the thing I'm scared about. Uh, but actually what they've done is is pretty much fully walked it back. Like it, it will, the same runtime fee will exist, uh, but only for Unity 2024, which isn't out yet. And only if you upgrade that and use that. So just don't do that, <laughs> which is like, no one is going to do that. <laughs> I mean, there might be some companies who sort of operate in some kind of weird professional, um, uh, I don't know, people who sort of chase brand new features, maybe maybe companies who want to use AI features, it might be worth it for them because I think Unity are going to go big into that. Um, I'm sure they'll try and load a bunch of stuff onto Unity 2024 that, that, to try and tempt people into it. But the key thing is that I don't want to, like, I'm still using Unity 2019. I haven't upgraded in four years <laughs> and I have no desire to. There's nothing in, in any of the versions since that tempts me to, to upgrade. So I have no trouble not upgrading to 2024. So now it's absolutely fine for me because they also say that, you know, they have once again said what they said in 2019, which is you will be able to stick with the terms of service that apply to the version that, of Unity that, that you are using. And if you don't upgrade, you don't change your terms of service, which is cool. That is how I want it to work. The only thing is, as before, that isn't legally watertight. Like that We're not guaranteed that under law. That is the current thing they're saying. And it's greatly reassuring to me that they walked it back because it shows that they give a shit when the world explodes with rage at them. <laughs> like for, for a terrifying moment, it seemed like that might not even matter uh -huh. to them. And if that doesn't matter, that's the scary part. Um, but yeah, it seems like they care enough to, to walk it back, which gives me assurance that they're not going to do this again in the next couple years, hopefully, because they've just hopefully seen that it doesn't work. Um, and that means I have time to finish Breach Wizards, get it out, patch it to whatever extent we need to patch it. And then we're in a situation where if they fuck us again, we can just say, well, I'll stop paying for Unity then because I don't need it anymore. Hmm. So uh, are you in a position where you would never consider using Unity again? It's, uh, I mean, if they could codify, I don't know what legalese is necessary to make it such that I have a legal guarantee that I can keep using the current version under the current terms of service. 
I I would do that if it's if it's in law that 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 is guaranteed. But I would never trust them again. Like there's no you, you kind of probably to a greater extent than we realize. You kind of go through um, your life as a developer making some assumptions that large companies are not going to behave like just straight out criminals. <laughs> like they're not just <laughs> yeah. gonna you know not literally criminals because I think it it may have been legal under you know. Uh, most com- probably under United States law, it was legal. I don't know, um, but just you know, to absolutely rob you of your money under in all but name, uh, if they possibly can, no matter the damage to their reputation. I kind of thought no one would do that, <laughs> and now I know. Oh, Unity will do that. They they back down this time, but uh, it's clear that they are desperate. That they are, uh, or the people in charge are vastly prioritize money over reputation or integrity or treating any treating their partners with respect. So their their reputation is absolutely in the trash. Uh, I would only use their software under some legal guarantee that mm-hmm. I will be able to continue doing so, uh, you know, for the same money that I'm currently paying. Do you foresee other companies stepping in to the mid-tier game development that Unity facilitates? I don't know. I've, I've suddenly taken a much greater interest than previously in these alternate engines. <laughs> suddenly, I know what Godot is, which previously <laughs> I've heard talked about a lot, but never really. I thought it was something like for, for really like retro lo-fi games, like Pico 8 kind of thing. Because um, most people I know who are using it, were using it for fun. Like, oh, I'm just a coder and I like learning new languages and I like messing around with new systems and exploring these things. And so I figured it was something that was, wasn't really practical. But actually, I'm, I've learned that... Um, uh, loads of games have been releasing it. Like it, it does 3D just fine. Um, Dome Keeper, which is a recent hit, was was oh, made yeah. in it. Um, so it is a viable, practical engine for commercial games. Um, and I will probably look into learning it next because, uh, yeah, it would be nice to have a non-Unity option in my uh, in my roster. Unreal, I was thinking about for a while, um, but uh, the five percent is actually pretty steep. I mean, uh, you know. If if Unity never changed to a worse um, payment plan than, than the one they proposed, uh, they would be cheaper than Unreal under most circumstances. Um, probably, maybe, yeah. If you're not making a free-to-play game, they would be cheaper than than Unreal. Um, and yeah, I don't know about any, anyone else really. Those are kind of the options that are on my radar. Yeah, Unreal always feels uh, like cracking a nut with a nuke. It doesn't... Um... <laughs> doesn't seem like the kind of thing that people would use for fairly small, low-budget indie games. Well, I mean, regardless of the the actual monetization and what cut Unreal take, I mean, just as a as a tool, it just seems uh, hideously overcomplicated for the sort Have of. Have you tried it? Yeah, I I mean, I I, I used Unreal uh, Ed a lot a lot. Um, 25 years ago <laughs> what? something crazy um yeah you know in the era of like uh unreal unreal um the first unreal game and unreal tournament i use it a lot right. it has um, but it's it's changed significantly since then <laughs> <laughs> it is no surprise like to say um yeah and it just it it, it seems set up for just a, a different kind of game uh, than the kinds that I, I'd want to make. It's, it's hard to imagine what um, what tool one would use to make 2D uh, games or, or like uh, UI games or, you know, what, what game would you make uh, um, Strange Horticulture in now uh, if, if Unity is off the table? Yeah, um, I guess um, Game Maker, actually. Uh, when mm. I was talking about the, the other options, I was thinking specifically about 3D games. But if I was making a 2D game, I would go to Game Maker first because I know it really? well. Didn't they have their own scandal? Um, I haven't entirely kept up with it, but they did. 
there was a big furore when they switched because they used to be just a fixed price thing. Like the the game mm. game yeah, excuse me, the game maker version that I made gunpoint in cost me thirty dollars <laughs> just flat. <laughs> um, and then since then they switched to a subscription thing. They were bought by a kind of gambling company, like a casino games company. Um, so there was a lot of fear about what that would lead to. I haven't. I don't think they've they've taken any revenue share or anything like that. Um, but I'm not completely up to date with it. But, oh right, um, I'm, I must be remembering the just the, the scare stories around them being acquired. I guess. Yeah, it it is it is more than a little um, kind of Trumpy uh, slash Boris Johnsony. I think this this recent Unity thing, in the you know the systems that we sort of subscribe to, <laughs> sort of you know technologically and politically, you know they only work if the people behind them kind of behave in a sort of appreciably humane way, right? Um, you know, DRM is always going to be something that we click through, um, knowing that, I guess, in theory at least, something terrible might happen further down the line. But sort of assuming that companies uh, won't act, you know, in a in a completely kind of outrageous way um, somewhere further down the line. And it does feel like it was a real step over the line with what Unity did with that stuff to kind of really quite yeah. fundamentally alter what they told you they were doing in a way that was you know maybe within the law but really kind of just such a just such a kind of corrupt way of operating really um when you're when you're sort of when you rely on subscribers it just seems like a kind of outrageous um kind of way of doing things like boris johnson sacking sacking his ethics advisors you know (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's quite similar to the Wizards of the Coast thing I think where they uh, a while back changed their terms of service such that they could sort of uh, you know take any of your profits from any of your spin-off things from D&D and then caused a huge backlash and, and then sort of said oh we were never going to do it we just we just you know our lawyers told us to (laughs) to carve out that language so that we could do it um and then yeah walked it back and i guess unity looked at that and thought cool (laughs) (laughs) it was very funny when that their first tweet was described you know all the uh what did they say angst and confusion um as if everyone was so like completely uh confused by what they were saying um yeah which they then went on to walk out walk back everything they said (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah they kept issuing clarifications that, that just re-stressed exactly how bad it was <laughs> it was just like no no it, it is this terrible thing no it's, it's only your firstborn we're not taking your second <laughs> just your firstborn <laughs> cool well i'm glad that's resolved and everything will be happy ever after from this point on I was- I'm sorry if I made some funny noises when you were talking there, Tom. Halfway through your description of what was going on, um, you transformed into uh, Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys and started singing um, Wouldn't It Be Nice? Uh, and I thought I was losing my mind. And it turned out, turned out my girlfriend had uh, switched on her, my laptop upstairs and it had Bluetoothed to my headphones. But it was for a moment there. It was so unbelievably confusing. Um, so, yeah, if any of my disbelief... Actually, that was me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, good timing on that one because it made me made my mind almost <laughs> fracture in two. <laughs> should we talk about some games? Yeah, I yeah. think we should talk about um, the game of the year, Shadow Gambit. Yeah, uh, I don't know, probably not most people's game of the year. I feel bad saying it's it's possibly my game of the year in the same year that Baldur's Gate three came out. 
but um it's just it's just sort of it's, it's just what i want it's just what i want right now and people are like you know oh i'm in a polycule with a bear and a vampire and that's fine you know that's good <laughs> it's good for them <laughs> But, you know. but are you loading a priest into your cannon and then firing him into your friend? <laughs> well, no. What I'm doing is, is like waiting in a bush for 10 minutes, watching God <laughs> And then I leap out, instantly fuck it up and reload. And um, yeah, that's my happy space. Should we explain what it is? Oh, go on then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's a game from a developer called Mimimi, Me, uh, which uh, you may not know the name, but you might know Shadow Tactics or Desperados 3, which is their previous two games, both of which are... Uh, along with Shadow Gambit, in a very tightly defined genre of um, stealth games where you control a small team of specialists uh, in real time, but with the ability to pause and plan out sort of synchronized attacks and uh, distractions and things like that. Um, And as you sneak around these huge and very detailed and sort of lush looking levels, um, there are just dozens and dozens of guards, all of whom are wagging their heads from left to right <laughs> and at all times. And you can sort of mouse over one at a time to see their vision cones and try and find little gaps in, in their lines of sight or throw a coin behind them so that one turns around just as you have your other two guys stab two guards simultaneously and drag their bodies into the bushes before the guy looks around again. And so uh, Shadow Tactics was that with sort of ninjas. Um, Desperados 3 was that with... Um, uh, cowboys, and then this is that with zombie pirates. Very succinct. The I think the, the what marks this one out as um, especially fun is is those zombie pirates. The fact that they are zombie pirates just lets them go absolutely nuts with the characters. Like um, I think Shadow Tactics was probably the most conservative of them, uh, and then Desperados Three did go pretty wild because they had the the voodoo lady who could do sort of domino things and possess people, mm. um, and now uh, it feels like Shadow Gambit. Uh, Almost every character is just insane in some way. Like that, their abilities are absolutely bizarre. So, like the cannon one I mentioned earlier, I have a lady who has, just has a giant cannon on her back. She also has a cannonball hole through her chest. <laughs> she was obviously killed by a cannon. And I guess took it personally and just picked up the cannon. Um, and she can uh, load any of your other team into her cannon and fire them like at enemies. At which point they land on them and knock the enemy out briefly um, and take a while to. to regain consciousness themselves she can also um in a very sort of yeah uh surreal magic-y way uh from a distance use somehow the fuse from the cannon to sort of like pick up a friend and and pull them towards you and load them into the cannon uh she can obviously load enemy bodies into the cannon which is good for hiding them but also then you can fire the body as as munitions um and i have upgraded her in this game you can upgrade I think every every character has just one upgrade you can get. They're pretty powerful, and it's it's a long time before you can get even one of these. It's a long time to work towards them, and then you just have it's a very big choice of like which of these six different characters do you want to get one upgrade for? And I chose her because her upgrade is, um, it's in sort of practical terms, it makes her melee attack faster, which is a big deal because most people's melee attacks are, are very long and slow, and that's a, a crucial, uh, you know, stat is is in a very narrow window of stealth, can you kill and dispose of a guy before the guard looks around and sees um, any evidence you've left behind? Um, and her thing not only dispatches the guard very quickly, but it also hides the body very quickly because what she does is just brings her empty cannon down on them <laughs> like without even knocking them out first. <laughs> they're just like fully alive and conscious and then they're inside a cannon and they're gone. <laughs> and it makes this amazing like funk noise. Yeah. <laughs> so satisfying. That's such a good noise. I find her a bit fiddly because uh, if you fire uh, somebody into somebody else, uh, then 
they are one. Hmm, I can't remember which way around it is. One or the other is is uh, unconscious, but going to wake up. So then you need to go yeah. over there and, and deal with them. Um, but but because they've landed on each other, I, I've often found that I've lo- loaded the wrong corpse into the cannon and uh, oh, right. alerts. But um, yeah, there's a lot of. Um, uh, I, I kind of wish that any time there is more than one thing to interact with pressing the interact button just pause the game so that you can really drill down into oh, yeah. hang on which thing am i going to do because i mm. so often i'm doing the wrong thing when i hit the use button and it gives you a way of cycling by, by i'm playing on gamepad and you've got to click in the right stick to toggle between them but if you're moving at all or if anything is changing which the, the order in which those things are arranged in the in the cycle keeps changing as well so you, you can switch away because it was the wrong thing and by switching away you actually switch to the wrong thing now because the order changed under you while you're doing it and it's just oh, like that right I can't even imagine how you'd use a gamepad to to play this game because it feels so much like um, an RTS, uh, you know, that kind of targeting where you're clicking where you want characters to go. Do you mm. do you often find that you are pausing to to tell people where to go, or are you sort of um, yeah, uh, in real time? It's been so long since I played one of these games without gamepad. I think I played all of Desperados with gamepad as well. Um, that I forgot you could just issue orders that way uh, because it does. It has struck me that it's slightly awkward. Um, you basically you're always steering a character directly, like in a third-person action game, and oh. you switch between um, who you're who you're controlling, uh, which is I guess good for sort of fine-tuning sneaking. Um, but what it does mean is if you just it's not so much a problem in combat because in combat I always want to pause the game and, and issue orders carefully anyway, and I don't mind that if, if it takes a while. The, the individual actions I'm planning are not very time-consuming to execute, so you just execute each one in turn. Then then time is sort of reset, and you you tell them all to happen at once. But what it is, what it does suck for is like when the when everything's resolved and you just want to get everybody to the next place, uh, but you don't want them all to group up and and you know run together as a group. Sometimes you want you know one person to run along the balcony, the other one to go along the low path, someone else to sneak through some bushes. And if you want all those things to happen at the same time, you would have to pause the game, then just drive each character individually, one after the other. So it would take you the same amount of time as just doing them all one after the other in real time anyway. So I end up just sort of controlling one person at a time and painstakingly moving all of them to the new area. And I guess on mouse and keyboard, you can just rapidly like click them all where you want them to be, right? Yeah, I think I, I mean I, I spend so much time directing people hither and thither that I, I think it would uh, be very labor intensive to use a gamepad instead. I tell you what, you my are... favorite of the of the pirates is that um, uh, that's exactly it's, what I was going to ask. Is <laughs> Quentin the um, is, is treasure hunter? But he's this decapitated yeah. skeleton with a golden skull and a fishing rod, and he uh, uses his his golden skull. He can throw it anywhere, and the guards want to go and investigate it and they pick it up and while they're doing that you can run up behind them and stab them multiple times in a flurry yeah, he of really fucking shivs people doesn't he, <laughs> yeah. he goes at whilst, it like it's- whilst shouting nobody takes what's mine is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just he's got a lot of good goblin energy to him that guy yeah in fact if, if they were if they hadn't just shuttered the studio uh which is tragic uh their next game should have been like a goblin squad i think that would have been a good, oh yeah a good new oeuvre for them to investigate but then, yeah, he yeah. can also, he can then uh, sort of lasso people with his fishing rod. That's a kind of unnecessary step of, of metaphor, isn't it? He could just use his fishing rod. He can fish for the people with his fishing <laughs> and uh, suck them into his uh, this chest, this treasure chest that he's carrying around on his back. It's um, he's really useful. But I, I don't know. Yeah. Some I feel like a lot of these characters are sort of overpowered in themselves, and it's only like... I wonder if what you think about the difficulty scaling of it, because it seems like... They've 
they do create challenging situations, but I'm not sure that after a certain point, the the way the difficulty expresses itself is as gratifying as uh, as it would be just to set up like an an easy scenario that can be solved in a sort of puzzle way with three particular characters with three particular skills. But instead, because you can use any character at any time, they can't really set up very specific scenarios. Uh, and maybe as a result of that, like where they go with difficulty is just to uh, put a lot of view cones overlapping each other. And that sort of restricts what you can do to some extent, because it means you do have to spend a lot of time just sort of like pruning, uh, picking people off at the fringes using characters who can lure people away. Um, so I find that a lot of the time I'm using similarish strategies, regardless of which um, which characters are selected at the higher levels. At the, I, I think it was it was more variation earlier on in the game, and now as things get more and more difficult, it feels like I, I, I'm falling back on just like picking people off. Is that your experience? Yeah. It's um, I am hitting a uh, a tough spot with it now, where I think I it certainly gets hard enough. But yeah, the, the type of difficulty it's presenting me with is just kind of draining at this point where um, I'm on a mission that uh, is to... I don't even know what the objective is, actually. I've forgotten. It's been so long since I was briefed on it. But um, uh, the particular objective is in a sort of elevated, well-lit area with a ton of guards, and including very powerful priest characters, um, all kind of looking right at it. And you are encouraged to start a distraction to, to get some of these guards away from that area. And uh, the distraction is you've got to pick up a torch from one area because like normal fire is very rare in this world. <laughs> Most fire is this magical white flame that you can't light a stick with, I guess. Um, but uh, you've got to light a torch in one area and then bring it quite some distance to a set of crates, to, which are also quite well observed by guards, um, to light those up so that a bunch of of guards will leave the objective area and then stand around and stare at the fire. But like carrying a lit torch as a stealth character <laughs> is a bit of a tall order. Uh, getting to the torches themselves, there is there are two of them. There is very much a wrong choice, uh, and I chose wrong. Like the one I went to, uh, it took me fucking half an hour of sneaking and picking apart guards to get to it, and I I actually didn't. I got really, really close to it, and I realized this last bit is just so fucking difficult. There were just like six guards all staring at each other the whole time. I just with the best will in the world, it, it's going to be so fiddly to try and make a dent in this that I, it's probably worth looking at the where the other torch was. And I looked at the other torch and it's like so much closer. It's so much easier to get to. <laughs> um, so I just, I ended up loading a save that was like 25 minutes ago because all, everything I'd done since then was kind of a waste of time and it would be better if I was just back where I used to be. Uh, finally worked my way towards that torch, got it to the, the objective and, and lit it up, um, distracted the six guards. Then I looked at the objective area that like, okay, now I finally cleared all the guards out. This should be nice and easy. If there's still about five guards all staring <laughs> yeah. at it, three of whom are like special magic guys who are undefeatable by normal means. And I'm just looking at things, oh, fuck's sake. I've worked so long on this fucking mission. And to add insult to injury, it's the same level as a as the last mission I did. Like the, the, the previous mm. mission I did was set on the same island. And usually they're, they're quite good. They're going almost for kind of a Hitman 3 kind of, or, you know, a modern Hitman uh, thing where there's sort of different islands that you revisit and you 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 stalk your way through different aspects of them, different regions. And so the fact that it's the same location uh, doesn't matter too much because there's enough variety there. But in this one case, the last time I was here, I had to fight my way through the same area. And so it's extra kind of um, 
uh, draining in that way. And yeah, it is difficult, but not in a really interesting way. There's just the, these big blocks of, of guards that if there is a way for me to pick them apart, it's going to be a real kind of finding an edge case kind of thing, just finding one little sliver of opportunity in this nightmarish nest. And I wish that the game would just like alternate a bit between here's a nice short, easy mission, and now here's a longer one, and then here's two medium length ones, and then here's like a you know a, a climactic one that it's going to be a bit tougher. Like I'm okay with with really sinking my teeth into something that's that's difficult and long term, like an hour, hour, twenty hour and twenty minutes mission. But at the moment, it, like I'm just hitting loads of really long, tough ones and. There's no variety within them either. It's just big, dense, tough area after big, dense, tough area. And after a while, like the, the abilities in this do give great scope for inventive and cool techniques. But if you keep pushing me into very similar situations, I am going to start using the same tactics over and over again. So it's like the game is sort of, the variety is there and I want to be using the variety, but it's 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 pushing that dial so, so hard that I'm kind of forced back into repeating myself a bit. Um so yeah, I'm yeah. cooling on it a bit from this mission, but up until that point, I was having a great time. Yeah, it's it's odd, isn't it? I think the it's a game where you really have to force yourself to make your own fun, and the game does do things that make that easier. Um, but it, it, I think I, there's a there's a version of this game which uh, in which I haven't bothered to experiment with anything, and I've tried, you know, I've taken the path of least resistance in every challenge. Um, and I think that would be quite unrewarding, but I I think maybe because I have. Uh, uh, you know, a feeling of generosity towards the game because I enjoyed Desperado so much that I was willing to kind of um, mess about with the systems in it in a way which I, I'm, I'm normally too impatient to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, yeah, at this point, I, I think I'm sort of near the end of the game now. I've unlocked all the islands. There's one character I haven't unlocked yet, but um, there's still a lot of incredibly fun things to do in there. And it does encourage you to use the character's uh, this huge set of characters. You, you typically only get three per mission that you can take out with you. And being uh, being quite a lazy uh, and stupid man, I, I would probably fall back on using the same three characters and the same skills over and over again just because I'm familiar with them. But then the game does this clever thing, which it ties your, your upgrade system, which you've mentioned before, where you have – it takes ages to earn – uh, points towards these things but the the kind of um the upgrades that you get are super powerful um but the the points are awarded based on using characters that you haven't used in a long time so the longer that a character is benched the more points they earn and then when you put them back into a level suddenly you get all those points uh, added to the kind of the the bar that's going up which will then eventually unlock a uh, a point that you can spend to, to earn an upgrade uh, so, so it does do some kind of clever stuff in in getting forcing you to experiment and and play with characters that you wouldn't necessarily. You mentioned on Discord the characters you unlock first. One was uh, Suleidi, the the a doctor character, right? Yeah, who's got like a, a kind of druid vibe. She makes plants and stuff. Right. Yeah, I, I've only just unlocked her at the end of the game because her skill set was sufficiently similar to. Um, some of the others who can hide bodies and things like that really quickly that um, I didn't f feel those 
a sufficient reason to to look into her. She is kind of she's a she is a cool character now. I and I I played with her a bunch, and it, it it was it was definitely worth unlocking her. But I, I think it's 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 unclear a lot of the time from the description how much overlap there is and what yeah. kinds of because. I had the same concern about uh, Fishing Rod Guy because I, I mm. loved him as a character designer. Just look at him. You look, just look at the art and just think, fuck yeah, I want that guy. And then when it actually came time to unlock the next character, I uh, was just looking at the mechanics of the cannon lady and I thought, ah, the cannon lady does sound very fun. She sounded like probably less practical, but just just so funny uh, that I, I thought, I'm going to go with my heart and, and go for the, the cannon lady character. And then I thought, well, now I don't really need the treasure guy because they're both people who can kind of pull people from a distance, hide bodies in, in the container they carry. It sounded like there was a lot of redundancy there. Um, but actually, now that I've got him, uh, there is plenty of differences in the way they work. Like the fishing rod, the fact that it can interact with stuff at a distance is is huge. The description of it really undersells it. It's like, and it, it may be used to, to operate certain things from distance, such as levers. As far as I can tell, it works on everything. You can pull down rocks. You can operate complex machinery. You can steal keys from people. It just does fucking everything. And that's so satisfying to like, uh, just sneak into a bush and and you know steal a key from someone who's not even on the same level as you, who's like right in the middle of a ton of guards who so it would be impossible to pickpocket normally. Um, and then his uh, his golden skull to distract people. I knew how that worked. I, that that's a mechanic that's been in the previous games, uh, but it wasn't until and I thought, well, I've got a ton of distraction mechanics. Like I've got coins and and all of these things, and I've even got like Sue Lady has a thing that makes people walk directly away from her. Um, and so I thought that seemed kind of redundant. Now that I've got it, I'm like, oh no, this is like a whole new world of distraction. This this opens up so many <laughs> possibilities. Being able to pull out just one guy to exactly where you want him to be, and then like shiv him <laughs> is fantastic. Um, yeah, so Lady is is uh, yeah was my first unlock and is very core to my strategy. I use it for everything. Um, and I really like the possession guy too. The um, mm. uh, the count something or other count. Yeah, it's like a posh idiot um, who possesses people by smoking i think he's got a sort of pipe that does something um and there's some kind of theme going on where like he's the uh the quartermaster or something but he really looks after the books of the ship and apparently he sort of he writes he reads these books and then and then sort of writes fictional biographies of himself and so the theme is like he's good at, at putting himself in other people's shoes i suppose and that that causes him to directly possess them uh, but like possession in in desperados 3 uh, and also in Dishonored, actually, now that I think about it, you you literally go inside the person. It's not like you mentally control them for a while and your body stays where it is. Like you physically <laughs> insert yourself into their body and then later on you can come back out. Um, but his mechanic is really interesting. I don't remember how it worked in, if this is the same as Desperados 3, but when you uh, possess somebody, it kind of puts down an anchor point where where you mm. did that. And you can only walk a certain radius away from that. It's quite a big radius, but once you reach the edge of that radius, you can't go any further without shedding that disguise or taking a new disguise. And of course, if you take a new disguise, you move the anchor point to that point. Um, and so it's all about placing those anchor points um, such that you give yourself the best opportunity. And I've been doing that in a kind of daisy-chaining way. And on easier levels, that works. You can always just get from one body to the next and, and get that area of, of ro- free roaming to where you need it to be. But now that I'm on harder, harder levels, and now that I have the fishing rod guy with the golden skull, uh, that is really cool for like, I, I need someone to, like this guy's too close, that guy's too far away. So I need to throw the skull between them so that one of them goes at this exact spot. Because if I possess someone there, the anchor point is going to overlap with this higher ridge that I want to get up to, like just where the ladder is, so I can actually climb up there. And once I'm up there, I'll be able to possess the the guard up there who's like a watcher uh, uh, guy who no one else is seeing. Um, and the strategy of that is really fun. Uh, but it is 
because that guy, if you're going to use him at all, you kind of use him uh, primarily. He's going to be like, all of your strategy revolves around getting him to where he needs to be because his great advantage is his disguise is otherwise perfect. Like no, no one sees through it. Um, and there's no time limit on it. There's no proximity limit on it. And so it's very, uh, very safe and uh, very reliable, which means you, you just build your whole strategy around it and you don't need to clear out areas when you go through them. That's why I ended up loading that 25 minute save game is because I'd work my way through this area, but not by eliminating everyone, but just by getting that guy to where he needs to be. So there's still loads of guards there. So if I wanted to backtrack to where I've been before, it would have been a whole load of more work to get past those guys again. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really fun. It's a completely different way of playing though. If you like the prospect, the, the way it bribes you to use characters you haven't used in a while, uh, I haven't got too deep into that. It's only just started doing that to me. Um, when, if and when it starts to bribe me to not use that guy, it's going to be a very different game. <laughs> be like, oh no, that's that's my safety blanket. <laughs> that's how I do everything. He's the character that uh, that changes the game most significantly from all of the other strategies you might play. He's it, that that game of lo- you know identifying which character possess to possess which you know which will present a, a new anchor point for you that's sort of like that mini game is is completely different from any of the other decisions you make um and that they, he's, a, he's a great character for that i really enjoy that you know he can distract people which um i remember the lady who is the disguise character in desperados 3 could also distract people if mm. i'm remembering right the lady could distract people pretty much indefinitely if they were just yes. like a, a regular grunt she could talk to them forever because she was an attractive lady and they were stupid and uh, I love that the posh guy in, in Shadow Gambit can distract people for like three seconds. <laughs> he's got like, yeah. he's got like it, everything he says is so stupid and so annoying that people just get bored of him real <laughs> yeah. fast and look away. <laughs> yeah. Voice acting's great in this game, generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah, it seems good. They've um, uh, really dialed it up. There's a, there's a, a Scottish character who I, I like a lot who um, uses an anchor to... A breach into the nether world where he can conceal himself and then <laughs> fling himself out to, to to kind of grab people from beneath um but he has uh, an offensive scottish accent <laughs> it's uh, it's definitely uh, it's definitely 800% scottish my my ears are not attuned well enough to know how offensive the jamaican accent is of the main character i don't know how no, it's authentic no, no. or if it's like super uh caricature that's why i'm slightly hesitant to, to sort of fully agree that your voice acting is great because i'm not qualified to judge some of it well okay um, let's say it's enthusiastic yeah yeah <laughs> that's, that's yeah it's, it. it's 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 uh, very game <laughs> <laughs> yeah cool i do I, I really i really have loved it though i've you know um sunk many many hours into it and will probably carry on it opens up lots and because you can revisit all the, all the levels they've really kind of wrung out uh as much variety from that as they can but I, I don't know how many times i'm going to want to go back to the the same levels having fairly thoroughly explored them in the sort of the, the main quest line and i did mm. re- initially think that it was going to be a game where if you return to the same island the it would have been depopulated in the way that you had previously uh, managed in in previous visits, but that's not the case. They fully repopulate. It's a completely right. different. Um, and it was, I don't know if I'm disappointed in that or not. I, I think I think if it did, if it did have that persistence, I would uh, have not been able to not kill everybody <laughs> on the island. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, and, and that would have ultimately driven me insane, probably. So it's for the best. 
Yeah. How does that, with that anchor guy, uh, he opens portals, right? Do you open mm. like multiple portals and then teleport between them or is it just one thing? Uh, no. So you sort of like, you go into the below and then there's there's no portal visible, but you are obscured. And then you can, within a radius of where you went down, re-emerge. Uh, okay. Um, but then, when you reemerge, you can you can sort of suck a person down into the into the <laughs> watery depths. Um, so he kind of kills and immediately hides hides bodies in a, in an instant, which is pretty good. He also he has, has a fish, like, but the fish isn't very. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> what does the fish do? <laughs> it, it distracts people, but like for a very brief amount of time. I don't think they're and it's not a distraction where they're they're intrigued to go and pick it up because uh, it's a fish uh, <laughs> uh, and not a golden skull. Um, but they, yeah, they're just briefly, briefly aware of it. To I say like that, if I was walking down the street one day and a fish hopped out into an alleyway, <laughs> I would definitely go and investigate that. <laughs> like, there's no way I'm not going to investigate that. <laughs> it would be fun. So many characters have, like, almost every character has a distraction tool. Uh, and they're so different in terms of the theme and, and what they do, you know, from a golden skull to a teleporting fish to a just a sort of mind control thing that makes you immediately want to walk away from someone you haven't even seen yet. Uh, I, lo- I would love a little like day in the life of a guard of <laughs> Shadow Gambit, all the fucking weird shit that happens to them. <laughs> yeah. There's a really interesting characterization of the, the enemies as well as being uh, sort of, uh, I mean, they're called the Inquisition and they oh, aren't yeah. quite Catholic, but they are. Uh, they have the the trappings of like an extreme mega inquisition. Yeah, very puritanical. Yes, yeah, yeah. Good outfits. I love the um, the the whole sort of theming of their special guys uh, and and the mechanics of them. Uh, really, really feel cohesive and and compelling. Where like the, be- the most basic kind is there's priests who are kind of connected by a, a line, which means that if you kill one of them, the other one's alerted. And in this game, alerts are just an absolute no-no, basically. You, you've got to avoid that. So you basically have to sink kill those two. Um, and that's kind of fun. But then I really love the, um, I can't remember what they're called now, but the sort of the high priests. Which, Prognostic wars. Uh, right. Yeah. Any, anything you use on them, any kind of ability, uh, they immediately counter it, turn around uh, and like transfix you with a kind of like, you know, a magic prison kind of thing. And that is... You know it's bad, and it, I think you see it in, a, in an early cutscene as, uh, as like someone um, failing to to do a takedown. But actually, it's also the way you take them down is is you just have to blunder into that trap. But while you have another character queued up to kill the guy while he's transfixing you, like there's a certain time window that it takes him to actually you know kill you with that or subdue you and whatever they ultimately do. Um, and that is such a kind of cool cinematic moment that you you know this thing of like. Uh, sneaking up on on a, a really big bad and you think you've got the jump on them and as soon as you strike, it turns out they knew you were there all along. They immediately just spin around and, and completely own you. Uh, I love that they made that into a game mechanic and something you actually engage with regularly. Mm. And you have to let them do it to you and it feels horrible, but then uh, in doing so, you trick them into letting their guard down from someone else and then get the better of them. Very cool. Shame there won't be any more of them. Yeah, it's, it's surprising. I um, uh, Let me look actually at as to how many like how many reviews does Desperados three have? Because I just had this impression that they were all big hits because they have really uh, glowing reviews. Okay, eight thousand three hundred views. That's good. Um, and overwhelmingly positive. Ninety six percent of eight thousand three hundred sixty one reviews are positive. That's pretty fucking good going. If you do that and you go out of business, that is scary. Well, I'm, I'm not sure. The reason for closing wasn't that um, Shadow Gambit hadn't done well. It's it's not clear that. 
I mean, I, sus- I suspect it didn't do as well as it could because it released in a in a window when everybody was talking about Starfield or Baldur's Gate. Um, so it probably didn't hit the heights that it could have done. And but their reasons for closing the studio were that the founders were uh, just didn't want to do it again. Basically, they'd found it yeah. exhausting, and they they just wanted to stop. And I guess they were faced with the choice of: do we hand on the IP to other people? Do we sell the studio versus just shutter it completely? And they chose to shutter it completely. Apparently, without like- informing staff in in advance, which is uh, doesn't sound great. Really- but- yeah, uh, that they did. I found like the the start of that blog post. The first half was was all about well, it's just time. We want to spend more time with family and sort of natural moving on. And then as I read on, there was stuff about like, you know, realistically, we're in this point where like we haven't made enough money from this that we wouldn't need to take publisher money for the next project. And that's just you know the cycle they've they've been in. Um, and so seeing success and then not getting the actual money mm-hmm. for it, uh, just never getting off the ground. You know. You do this stuff in, in the hope of getting a hit, and once you have a hit, you can stay independent um, and then keep all your revenue, and it's it's a happy spiral instead of a, a downward spiral, um, or I guess not downward spiral, but like stasis, uh, and they were, they were tired of doing that. So yeah, it sounds like they could have continued, but it would have been still un, under a publisher's yoke. I'm just looking at these, though. I noticed they changed publisher between uh, Shadow Tactics with was Daedalic, and then Desperados 3 was THQ Nordic, and uh, Shadow Gambit is... Uh, says the publisher is me, me, me. So self-published apparently, mm. uh, but maybe they did take some money for it and you know had investors that they had to pay back or something. Well, it's it's interesting. I think. I mean, this is. I think this is probably true as far as I understand these things across all <clears throat> kinds of development. But perhaps it's it's more acute for that kind of mid-size, double A-ish um, team of a few dozen employees that you are existing on a on a knife edge in terms of like how much you know, it's a very beautiful game with um, you know lots of really quite stunning assets and bits and bobs and really high levels of polish and of course the more money and time you plow into those things you know the more risk you take as a studio as well and I, I wonder if that is in a more acute effect when you are you know a, a mid-sized team rather than you know a, you know a small indie team or a or a big triple uh, a bmf yeah we don't know how much these games cost to make I'm, i i imagine they cost a lot more than the games i make <laughs> and so the level of success they need is probably a lot greater yeah r.i.p me 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 it is it is a shame because there's there's something about that particular team in that they are a very specific set of nerds making a very specific game which they've made you know several times in a row now um and that's just a wonderful thing right it's just wonderful when when people make it their mission to perfect um mm. a relatively uh, confined formula um, or at least I always think that's wonderful. So it's a shame that that couldn't quite um, uh, lift off in the way that they needed it to. Yeah, especially as yeah. each of the games has got incrementally better, you know, as, as they're getting closer and closer to perfecting this vision of what real-time stealth should look like. I wonder what their next game would have looked like. Maybe it would have been the perfect game. <laughs> quite possibly. But I, 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 these games have spoiled 
uh, all stealth for me though. <laughs> like <laughs> I, just, I just want stealth to be this. And one of, in fact, one of my frustrations with Baldur's Gate, which we should talk about. I, I know you've you've uh, played a lot more of it than I have, Jamie. But one of the my frustrations of it is that I started then playing Shadow Gambit, and I was like, why can't I? Why don't I have this kind of nuanced control over over all of my characters in this? Because there's there's often stealth situations in in Baldur's Gate, and it just it doesn't have the same articulacy to uh, enact plans separately but at the same time that uh, you could in, in actual D&D or in as you can in Shadow Gambit um, so yeah it, it, it feels it feels sad that they've gone because um, somebody else needs to pick up where they left off and, and make the perfect stealth game for me personally well it's funny isn't it because Larian are exactly you know sort of what I was mentioning a moment earlier they are uh they were a kind of mid-sized team who were making a very, very specific uh, game, um, you know, a CRPG from the lineage of Baldur's, one and, Baldur's Gate 1 and 2. Um, and they spent decades, you know, making a bunch of uh, charming, but, you know, mostly unplayed uh, kind of weirdo games um, before, you know, building up to the kind of, you know, one, two, three knockout punch of of the Divinity Original Sins and, and now Baldur's Gate 3, you know. And it's a, it's a shame. I wonder what Mimi Me's Baldur's Gate 3 would be, you know. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, uh, Baldur's Gate 3, uh, I talked about this um, a lot, uh, you know, when I was, when we were last on, I think. Um, obviously, it's, you know, it's 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 been heavily discussed, this game. Um, and rightly so. I think it is... Uh, a triumph um it's it's uh it's a sort of you know there was a lot of discourse on twitter about you know um people quite rightly pointing out that like you know th- there's this sort of unreasonable expectation set of of rpgs now to be all like this and i actually think it's great that this kind of game is a sort of once in a generation thing um these kind of you know literate massive uh high budget kind of everything games you know they they don't come along often and and I think uh, it's really great that something can be so sporadic and yet so wonderful at the same time. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, the ending of the game. And I won't spoil anything um, apart from the fact that the final act of the game is in Baldur's Gate. But I don't think that is a, a spoiler. Um, one quite funny thing about it is that uh, I wonder if future historians of this period will talk about um, the art of releasing a game which is massive um, and more or less unplayable on certain hardware in its third act, and then the kind of technological race to um, patch that final act, which on my Steam Deck was more or less unplayable, um, before most players actually reach it, <laughs> which I think is literally what they were doing, because you get to Baldur's Gate, um, and uh, if you're playing on Steam Deck as I was, you know, it really was, you know, chugging along, best it could, very low frame rates. Not that that's something I normally mind, but, you know, it really did pe- test my patience quite a bit. Luckily, they improved it a fair bit, and it's it's not so bad. Um, so... I, I mentioned when I was first talking about Baldur's Gate, I talked about how I thought it probably uh, was attempting to solve the big town problem um, by having its big town be the finale of the game. And I talked about how um, uh, one of the real core strengths and actually the kind of core 
narrative concept, I think, that drives the game is that all of the narrative strands that you encounter all funnel you down um, the kind of same uh, leisure center slide. <laughs> they all point you in the same direction. Um, it's not a bunch of sprawling side quests which connect um, uh, in rather meaningless ways to each other. Everything you do is ultimately shepherding you in one direction. Um, and uh, that is also kind of um, the effect of that is, uh, is is kind of enhanced by um, all of the decisions that you're making along the way um, paying off as you travel down that path. And the way they achieve that remarkable goal is just like with huge amounts of writing, um, which just creates this genuinely tabletop role-playing game feeling, I think. Like that is how they're able to allow... Um, how they create that sense of kind of tabletop verisimilitude is just by huge amounts of writing. And so I wondered if, if, you know, the big town problem would be solved by that because once you arrive in Baldur's Gate, everything you are kind of playing through and all the storylines that you're involved in and all the character journeys that you're on are are kind of set um, so that you don't have that kind of decision uh, problem paralysis when you, when you get to the big town of Baldur's Gate. Um, and I think that the game does as well as, as could be expected with that. Baldur's Gate um, is still a remarkable city. Um, it's enormous. There's so much to see and do. There's so much going on. Um, you know, the, there's, the NPC level is just insane. Um, and it is the, the period of the game where all of your chickens come home to roost and all of your characters' stories wrap up. Um, and obviously the game's main story wraps up. I would say that if Baldur's Gate has a failing, and it's not really a failing because they couldn't really have been expected to do any better than this, it's that the game doesn't quite pay off on the kind of promises it makes earlier on. Um, it's still a great ending, and it's still kind of, you know, had me kind of wanting to kind of applaud as the credits rolled. Um but I think the problem with that level of fidelity and that level of like consistency up to that point is that you notice it when it doesn't quite um, uh, it doesn't quite pay off. You know, uh, it, it makes those moments a little bit more obvious when you have a bit of uh, when you have something you've done not be recognised or something a character has has acted upon previously not remarked upon, and of course that's just you know. That's unfair on this game, really, because it does such a good job of that along the way. It would mm. just, I think, be impossible for it to conclude with that same level of we see you player um, consistency that it has earlier on in the game and, and at moments throughout. Um, that said, it sort of doesn't matter because the writing itself is, you know, pretty remarkable. The characters' stories, the kind of individual characters that you have with you, really good and continue to kind of zig every time you think they're going to zag. Um, nothing is ever as simple as, as the most kind of basic ass fantasy world sort of cliches. They always find a way to undercut something and, or make a joke about it and, and, or something like that. So that was um, 
really great. There's one particular area in the final um, act of the game, which I won't spoil, but if you've played it, it's when you go to someone's house, which is just a masterclass in level design, gameplay design, storytelling, everything. It tells one little kind of discrete story of a, of a character that you encounter there um, and tells you the history of this place, the history of the um owner of this place it includes one of the most genuinely filthy um sex scenes i've ever seen in a video game um and concludes with a song and it's just <laughs> yeah it's just an absolute knockout you know it would be the finale of any other game and this is an optional era area that you go to um so that was just um amazing um and yeah just completely just knocked me off my feet the thing I would also say that the game does probably better than any other game has um, is what it does to the PC, what it does to your character. Uh, you're advised to play as a kind of, uh, a, you know, a, your own character or, you know, there's various ways in which you can engage with this game. But one of the things the game does so good is give you a sense of your ownership of your character um, and it give you a sense of your character as a developing entity in this world um, uh, both in the ways that your character can change and evolve and transform physically um, but also the way in which your character is recognized um, by the game for their actions good or bad i played through the um, dark path um uh, the dark urge path that you can have in that game and had just a really riot of a time just being as evil as I possibly could be and doing some truly horrendous, really, really quite awful things to people who really didn't deserve it. Um, and the way that that was marked on my character's body and even in the power sets that they got to is just um, just brilliant, 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 brilliant. Uh, I can't can't say enough beautiful words for it um that i was really in uh, i really enjoyed the fact that for example i had a i was given a perk at some point a power at some point that i could kill um any baddie who was under um 100 hp um and i could only use that power once but it would definitely kill them and that was the last thing i did in the game i used that on the, <laughs> the final boss in the final moment oh, nice. that was her, that was my game ending moment just suddenly realizing i had that at my disposal and i could just obviate my way through this uh, through this moment just felt very good uh, that's been my, my main draw towards this game i was a bit on the fence of of um uh whether i was excited about it and then anyone who talks about a way in which they kind of broke the game or bypassed a major encounter or anything that just like uh sort of anything slightly cheesy <laughs> that kind of uh got them through something tough that's hugely appealing to me that's my main <laughs> reason to play is i just want to find i want to break something in a fun way <laughs> Yeah, and it's basically a game made of that. Like, it's a game built of that. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I sort of shared the feelings of, of um, some other people I saw early on sort of saying, like, you know, early on in the game, they sort of felt like they were losing, being left out of that because they didn't quite have the brain uh, uh, to kind of, um, you know, do the clever things and do the game-breaking things and, and do all that sort of stuff. The game does teach you that, I think. Um, and so by the, the sort of last act, there was all sorts of tricks and, 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 and clever things I was doing, not least because the fact that as your powers level up, you get so many crazy spells and items. You just get this kind of mad 
prop bag full of lun- lunacy, you know, all sorts of mad powers and 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 one-off spells and, and crazy things that you can do that even without trying, you still end up doing some completely mad shit. Um, so yeah, it's, that was just... Uh, yeah, I agree. It's it's um it's really fun how much you can break the game and how much you can fuck with the game. And to be honest, it has kind of ruined all other games a bit now <laughs> because <laughs> because um the sort of despite what I was saying earlier about the once in the generation thing, the one thing I would say is that if you're playing like Starfield, um uh, which I won't go into because I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be a downer. Cool. But like that game <laughs> really struggles to recognize you doing anything at all. And like in Baldur's Gate, if you'd like, you know, stolen something and then talked to the guy you stole it from, um, and he suddenly realized you've already nicked it, there would be a whole thing that would happen there, right? And you could almost guarantee that. Or if you snuck in and and did a quest before it actually was activated, the the game would recognize that in some way. Skyrim just seems like a a sort of um, made out of play doh in comparison to to the kind of um, world of, of of Baldur's Gate three. Um, so yeah, like oh, I will replay it because there were two characters who in my playthrough, uh, you know, I didn't encounter at all, um, and so there's a huge amount of content left to experience, which again just feels like a really remarkable thing to be able to say about a game that like I can safely play through it again and get a whole bunch of stuff um, that I never even encountered even once, you know? So yeah, that's, that's pretty glorious. Um, and super excited to see what um, Larry and do next. I mean, God only knows really. Um, uh, but it's, you know, it'll be super exciting, whatever it is. So seven out of 10 then is what you're saying. Uh, <laughs> seven, seven out of 10. A solid a bump- example of its genre. Bumping it up to a seven and a half because of that filthy sex scene in that one guy's <laughs> house. <laughs> I was surprised how... Uh, I only just started it. I'm only like two hours in, maybe. Um, and uh, the intro... Uh, the sort of tutorial, I guess. Um, the combat felt very like light and accessible, and it was. I, I'm sure they fudged the numbers or they, they just balanced it uh, to be very easy so that you're having a lot of successes, most of your shots are hitting, and, and it just uh, felt pretty good. And then as soon as I was in the game proper, I was in some kind of ruins, um, and I saw, uh, sort of figured out some kind of, not really a trap, but like there was a way to kind of break through the floor that, that I saw, and it seemed like a the kind of way you would discover like a hidden treasure stash or something, like a little optional extra thing that we can figure out to get some more loot. So uh, I you know, did some Rube Goldberging to, to smash through the floor. <laughs> and then I'm a very keen, like I, I kind of forgot this about Larian's games. Everyone talks about the, um, when they talk about the, the systemicness of it, they often talk about the elemental things of like you know, oil is ignited by fire and all that stuff, which I don't remember really having that much fun with in Divinity, especially. But I did forget that it has you know, one of my favorite emergent game things, which is uh, stacking crates. <laughs> and they're just like a physical, like a big physics object crate you can just pick up as an inventory item, just put it in your stash. And I had like three of these, uh, just walking in those rooms, picking these up. And then I came to, I smashed through this floor. And uh, to its great credit, when, you, when you're sort of planning to jump somewhere, it'll preview how much damage you'll take from the fall. And I could see I took some damage if I jumped down there. I thought, well, I still want this, this presumed treasure that I, I must have uncovered here. Um, so I'm going to be smart about this. I'm going to take these boxes out of my inventory and drop them down there so that I raise the floor level and then land on the boxes and not take full damage. And, 
that is when I ran into, I mean, that, that may well work. I hope that does work. Uh, it didn't work for me because of the ambiguity inherent in the word drop, <laughs> because <laughs> I got, I got a crate out in some kind of way. I think I, I think there's in your inventory, you can drop it or you can move it. And I, I said, move. And then the crates in front of me and there's a prompt in game saying drop. And I'm like, yeah, I want to drop the crate there. But what drop actually meant was drop my character into the hole. <laughs> and in, in fact, because doing that triggers a sort of cutscene or, or a, a scene transition, my entire team dropped down the hole <laughs> immediately. Uh, and the good news is we didn't actually take any fall damage from it for some reason. Uh, the bad news is that uh, that just immediately got us into a uh, fight with just like eight fucking guys who all of whom have more health than my toughest character. And we are three people who don't know what the fuck we're doing. We're all like level one. And it's just absolutely brutal. And I'm like, I thought this was going to be a reward. I, like, this is a secret bit I discovered. Why am I being absolutely mullered? So I, I chickened out and I immediately put the difficulty down to easy or story mode or whatever. What did you play on, Jamie? I played it on... I kind of switched up and down as I as I played. Like, I think I played through all of Act 1 on, on the normal difficulty. And that felt, like, nicely... Like, it felt like there was a solid difficulty curve there where um, it was kind of completely impossible uh, for a while, you know, uh, um, and then kind of plateaued out as I kind of got to the end of Act 1 and I was sort of breezing through by then and then act two gets considerably harder and then i started you know kind of going up and down sort of i'd often not remember which difficulty i was playing on um and then i'd you know i'd real then i'd kind of realize oh this is a little bit too easy to have fun this is a bit too hard um so yeah i, I just kind of freely switched between the two difficulties and i felt no shame whatsoever in, in doing that um and i, I think the easy di- the easy difficulty is still is still crunchy enough to have fun um you know, it's a game that really tries to find your weakness, and there's some absolutely fucking bastard fights um, later on, um, which are really, you know, an attempt to kind of, uh, you know, find your failing in your team. And 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 you know, there's one fight um, in Act Two without any specific spoilers where there's a guy um, with a shotgun which fires exploding grenades. And then there's a bunch of um, zombies standing around him who are immune to fire. And then he's got a um, pet cat that can grab one of your guys and warp away with them um, to a distant location um, in a turn. Um, And that was just like, how the fuck am I going to defeat this guy? This is just ridiculous, you know. Um, So there's a bunch of stuff um, like that. Um, But actually it becomes a a really fun way of, of, of sort of um, pushing you to um, experiment and find other way ways through things, and also just push people off edges into abysses, which uh, is uh, is an elite strat that never gets old. Um. <laughs> yeah, I've been shoving at every available opportunity, even if it doesn't really benefit me. Just the fact that I can do that as a bonus action is great. <laughs> it's really good. It's really funny, even just to push someone on their ass, just like next to you. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just very entertaining. I love the the D and ness of it. Is is uh, very interesting to me because I've never really played normal D and D. Have I? Oh, for the Christmas special, the the Crate and Crowbar thing. Um, but I think that's the only time I played actual D and D. And I've mostly played sort of spin offs and derivatives, all of which kind of cut away a lot of the um, uh, superfluous stuff, I suppose. And there is something very weird about D and D spells and abilities. There's just like a, a very random assortment of things that have obviously been there for a very long time and and gone perhaps not 
not questioned <laughs> in a lot of ways. Just the the disparity in the kinds of things you, uh, the power of the spells you unlock is so wild. They're just like, you know, this one can create or destroy some water and this one summons like an otherworldly demon for you. <laughs> and like, uh, they're all so bizarre. But it, it got very fun for me in that very first fight that I mentioned with the eight guys. Um, my uh, wizard Gale has immediately developed a certain kind of persona that I'm going to try and lean into as much as possible because, uh, you know, each turn you kind of, you're doing one main action and at this early in the game, there isn't that much choice. It's usually just like one of these spells does more damage than the other one. So I'm going to do that. Uh, and then afterwards you've got, it turns basically over, but you've got bonus actions. So if someone's close to you, you can shove them. You can also jump. Um, and there's a few other little things like that. Um, and so I'm always just like doing one thing on my turn. And then the bonus action is kind of just, I don't know, whatever, just, just do something for the sake of it. But uh, Gail was standing right next to a bed after he just set someone on fire. And I discovered I can lie down on the bed. <laughs> it's just a free action. <laughs> so at the end of every turn, he just literally lies down on a bed until it's his turn again <laughs> and gets back up. Oh, that's really excellent. Yeah, I think it actually, like that kind of squiffiness I spoke about, um, but even at the ending with the like, you know, you know, not the 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 closing narrative moments not necessarily being as satisfying as you'd hope. Anyone who's ever played or DM'd a tabletop rolling role playing game will be like fully familiar with the sense of things being faintly unresolved, um, and also having a whole bunch of stuff that the players are carrying around with them, um, which they haven't bothered to look at properly yet. You know, it just <laughs> kind of it feels nicely authentic. I think like. And like follows your follows your kind of fantasy a little bit as well. Like I never really um, engage with the crafting system at all. I never really engage with like buying and selling stuff. There were things I had in my backpack which were like oh, that looks interesting, um, and then I just ignored and never you know touched again. And again, I had like plenty of fun. You could have an immense amount of fun, you know, going through all that stuff and optimizing it and going to all the different vendors and finding the best you know, gloves or whatever. Um, but ultimately, like, I think one of the things that's fun about tabletop role-playing is, is like, creating some kind of order out of chaos. And, yeah, I think it, like, it it, it, it leans into that in a really, a really, like, chunky way um, that is really kind of an, an inducement to, to fun rather than frustration. Sounds good. I should probably probably play it some more. I, that's the thing, though. I, I you know I, I was really into it. Got to a kind of convenient stopping point where some things had resolved. Then I went on holiday for two weeks and haven't been able to get back to it since. I have no recollection of <laughs> what was going on in the game, or I'm, I'm certainly not going to remember because I just. Uh, got to the point where you sort of unlock a whole bunch of new ways of playing with those characters. Like, uh, I, I can't remember exactly where, what level that stuff kicks in, but, um, it's a whole bunch of new stuff to play with. And, uh, I have, I know I'm going to get back into it and just be completely bewildered, but I have to at some point, cause it's meant to be really good. Yeah. You've both persuaded me to go back to both these games, both of which I've, uh, in the middle, well, not in the middle of, in the case of Baldur's Gate, but both of which I have started and not finished, and both of which I've sort of been meaning to get back to, but feeling a little bit daunted about where I am. Um, and this is very inconvenient because if only one of you had persuaded me, I would know what to play next. But now I'm just <laughs> I will say, you know, I had a couple of breaks from from Baldur's Gate, um, and also like the big town issue. You know, when you get to Baldur's Gate, 
it is quite overwhelming. You have to just kind of lean into it a little bit and kind of trust the game, which I think is a very hard thing to do when a game is like everyone's talking at you and everyone's giving you missions. And, you know, I think we're sort of trained to kind of find that quite alarming. I certainly find it quite alarming. But in VG3, they do a very good job of actually guiding you nicely and i also think like you talk to the, any of the characters at any point they'll fucking tell you whatever you need to know <laughs> there's so much writing in this game that um they'll very quickly resituate you back in the world that they're in by talking endlessly about the various horny escapades they had with um, mythical <laughs> characters from the uh, forgotten realms yeah Starfield has not fared well by comparison i have to say although i mean in fact that's probably uh, maybe Baldur's Gate greatest gift to me is uh allowing me to play two hours worth of starfield and know for sure that i don't need to play any more of it (laughs) hello i'm space steve would you like to see my wares (laughs) would you like my gun my spaceship and everything i have (laughs) (laughs) i do I, i do feel quite good though that starfield has given everybody who's played it sort of very belatedly the same experience that i had playing fallout 3 for review <laughs> and that, like not not specifically because i mean the game is buggy or or unfinished even though it is both of those things or that like i mean uh, fallout 3 was a game in which at review characters would frequently t-pose before being twanged into the sky <laughs> <laughs> for no reason um but it's just it's just interesting seeing people come to uh, a bethesda game and and seemingly for the first time recognize the, the woeful levels to which bethesda's storytelling aspirations reach um and they've they've always reached that uh i think i am going to dig into it at some point i i haven't really played it um despite taking a dig at it just now. <laughs> um, I just started it and and uh, it ran like shit. And then I read Chris's uh, tip that if you've installed it to a hard drive rather than an SSD, then you're fucked up and you've got to uninstall it and reinstall it on, the, on an SSD. And also, I think probably everyone had this experience of, well, now I've got to spend like an hour of my life figuring out what I can remove from my SSD because it's a big fucking game. And I've finally done that. I will play it at some point. Um, and I'm, I'm suitably expectations have been suitably lowered. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure there's good stuff in it. Like this is the thing. I always feel like, um, I mean, we had a debate in, in the discord channel about whether Starfield's opening specifically was like exceptionally bad compared to Bethesda's historic output. And like, I, I mean, I agree. <laughs> it's not great. Uh, and it's, it is inept and boringly long, uh, as an opening. And in those, in that sense, it is way worse, uh, than other games that they've made, but in all the ways in which it is incompetent, those things have always been there in Bethesda's previous games. So it's not going to be a surprise. I wouldn't have thought it would be a surprise to anybody. Like I feel like maybe with some minor variation, like all Bethesda's games, Oblivion onwards, have been like five out of ten narrative RPGs and eight out of ten fuckabout simulators attached to like ten out of ten mod scenes. And how much you enjoy them depends on which part of that you engage most. And so I think particularly with this game, it's it, the opening is very linear and there's less obvious fuckabout simulation. So it's putting a lot more weight on the narrative's shoulders and it is uh, it, it just highlights the the, the flaws with you know Bethesda's general attitude towards storytelling, I think, um, but 
I'm once you're out of that, maybe the you know the whole fuck about simulator aspect of it will take over, and it will be an absolute delight for me. That the intros to to Bethesda games, um, I, I don't think I've ever really had a, a problem with uh, well, uh, Morrowind, Oblivion, Skyrim, Fallout Three, um, which are the games I like, um, and I love all of them. Uh, and for me, what the main purpose the intro serves is to kind of uh, uh, make the open world look amazing by contrast. It's that moment when you emerge from the tutorial and you're like, you realize, oh, like you have the, this visual reveal of, of, you know, stepping out of the dungeon and seeing Cyrodiil for the first time. Um, plus the sort of gameplay excitement of like, and now just go anywhere. Now it's just completely free reign. And so what I've heard of Starfield saying is that the, the, the on-rails part is very long uh, and does not dump you out in any particular <laughs> great vista or anything. So that sounds like a, a major step down. Yeah. I also I also think just having like Oblivion and Skyrim being both early open world games uh, and you know new technology for for players to engage with and all the systemic stuff they offered that that just makes that sense of kind of freewheeling fuckaboutery feel very attractive and I don't think we're exactly past that now with Starfield but it's not novel in the same way um and yet the other parts of the, those games the storytelling ability has not progressed uh, and so you have this sort of um, out of the gate, fairly fairly bland story about an alien artifact and chosen one stuff set in this sort of cookie cutter sci fi setting. Yeah, it feels it doesn't even feel dated. It's just that Bethesda's storytelling is completely bizarre and always has been. You know, I don't know even know how to describe there that way of presenting dialogue where the camera slam zooms into a character's face who's standing in perfect symmetry to the plane of the camera. I like that's not from like. That's not from any storytelling or cinematic discipline. <laughs> that I'm not drawing from anything. It's completely unique to them. I um, guess it's very easy to code. <laughs> uh, it's funny because I've been um, I've been playing. Uh, I won't go on about it because I want to play the whole thing. But playing the opening hours of the new improved uh, Cyberpunk after reading some excellent reviews of the DLC from uh, Tom Senior and Graham Smith. Um, but like for all the talk about that game, you can't argue that like the opening few hours of that game aren't a slamming like bit of world building and character introduction and, you know, just intensity um, uh, and intrigue and all that sort of stuff. Even though, you know, there's the stuff I, you know, I think is a little bit, um, you know, you could describe some elements of it as passe, but what it is, is this kind of like thrilling sort of, yeah, like I say, sensory overload experience. Whereas um, Starfield is so like amiable and sort of feet shuffling, um, and kind of a little bit, um, a little bit kind of uh, uh, apologetic about itself. Um, whereas you know, Cyberpunk twenty seven seven is just you know completely unapologetic about you know, for example, the fact that the game didn't work on release. You know, but even beyond that, it's you know, it's just got so much confidence. And Starfield feels strangely underconfident and slightly ashamed of itself. But a bunch of people are loving it, so I don't want to yuck their yum. Because, you know, a bunch of people are, are kind of playing through that game and, and, as you said, Tom, like, getting past a certain point and, like, being like, oh, no, this is this is what I come to these games for. This is why I loved, you know, those games of, of uh, Bethesda Yore. So, I'm, you know, they're just having a good time with it after a certain point. So 
It could be that they're wrong and they should feel bad. So. <laughs> I think they should definitely feel bad. I, if, if, if people come away from this conversation with anything, I want them to understand that that one sex scene in Baldur's Gate 3 is incredibly filthy and that they should feel bad for enjoying Starfield. <laughs> <laughs> so I've also been playing Quake 2, um, which has been recently uh, remastered by the cool kids at Night Dive Studios who are bunch of people who you know uh, revamp and, and uh, remaster uh, old games and do a pretty good job of it i think um i played a bit of the quake um remaster that they did and that was that was uh, very nice quake 2 has a special place in my heart because it's a game that i owned and played a lot of as a teenager um and i always was rather charmed by its kind of uh, slightly thin um, kind of take on sort of military story shooter sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> even though it was a kind of, you know, janky and slightly flat game with a kind of gesture towards narrative without actually bothering to include one at all. I always just found it rather charming. Um, and I played a lot of it in multiplayer. Um, this new remaster, um, you know, they do all the uh, um, all the stuff that you'd... Uh, uh, imagine which is to say they've polished up the graphics they've um you know done a whole bunch of um stuff to make it playable on modern um material i actually played through quake 2 on my steam deck quite recently played through the campaign um it was, it was, it was already pretty good to be honest um but they've done an amazing job of um, adding things like a compass which will tell you the way to your next objective which the original game really really needs because this kind of has this early version of kind of almost like a half-life thing where you're sort of traversing through areas and actually coming back through areas that you've already mm. visited sort of with loading screens in between them and yeah, without no recollection of that that was a complete surprise to me playing the um the remaster because i yeah. i played quick through a lot and uh I didn't. I had no recollection of it being quite that complicated. Where you are, in fact, backtracking through places you've already been and uh, doing even sort of dark soulsy shortcuts and so forth. Um, it's very, conf- it's yeah. very confusing. There's, there's a couple of moments in that, in the original campaign, where you're just like, "Hang on, what the fuck am I doing?" And you go and look at your sort of quest log, and it's like one sentence, or <laughs> it's like switch on the turbines, and you're like, "I just yeah. did that." <laughs> I just did that. What do you want me to do? And it, what it wants you to do is to kind of, you know, go back to an area you've previously visited, which is just insane. Um, uh, and then you've got this, like, you know, the VO over the top of you where there's, like, ostensibly some military commander kind of crackling orders at you where they're completely useless too. Um, so, yeah, they've added that compass, which is just a revelation and the game really needs it. And it's also a really satisfying bit of UI because you you press it and it kind of beep, 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 beep sort of flows away from you and, and leads you where you need to go, which I really like. But because I um, played the original campaign relatively recently, I jumped straight into the um, new campaign that has been made for the game, um, which has been specially made by um, Machine Games. Um, they did one for the quake remaster and they've done one for this one and it is a triumph it's just so good i was really really surprised by quite how brilliant um the level design and enemy placement and sort of storytelling that they've achieved um in this kind of ancient uh, engine um it's got this wonderful framing device where you are a sort of commander on this spaceship uh which seems a lot like the um the Doom Eternal, a uh, Doom Fortress, where you're sort of orbiting the planet and dispatching soldiers down in escape pods to um, carry out missions on the scorched earth below. Um, 
and uh, they are short sort of three-level missions, which basically, you know, kind of involve you doing Quake 2 stuff where you're uh, grabbing a data disk and plugging it into a console to fire a laser or something like that. But within that, they, um, uh, as an experience, it reminds me a lot of um, Doom Eternal um, in the, what they do is basically plonk you into these really beautifully designed arenas that have some kind of circularity to them and then just like completely pump the space with all the kind of worst monsters from the original game revamped versions of those monsters and a bunch of other kind of new gribbly things that they've added specifically for this version um and then just set you off on them um and it's incredibly intense you have to be constantly searching for ammo and health and also prioritizing which of the various sort of end game enemies you're going to attack at a given time um and yeah it reminds me of doom eternal in that sense because uh, even though you've got your kind of quick save and your quick loads which you can sort of hammer on if you want to it's incredibly satisfying to kind of play this you know uh, um uh, at full throttle and just kind of see how far you can get. The level design for this version is ingenious. Like they've done all sorts of clever things with shortcuts and sort of um, having you re-arrive back in spaces you've visited before. Um, and also just being really creative with that engine and, and making the kinds of spaces that weren't at all um in the original game and also including kind of jokes and references to the original um Quake. Um just really remarkable and just shows you like um even with a relatively limited palette what what can be done um in a space like this um yeah and i've just had an absolute blast with it in this you know i've played a lot of the boomer shooters that have come out in the last few years and i actually think this ranks with the very very best of them um because you're just given this selection of toys, these kind of basically unwinnable fights, um, and you're just sort of sent into them. And it's just a really visceral, um, thrilling experience um, that really caught me off guard. I like, you know, it's a game I sort of saw as a rather, as I said, charming kind of way to pass the time. You know, it's quite a fun couch game. Um, but to see the the raw materials of that game transformed into something like really like, really like um amazingly creative and fun uh, and intense it's just like really good and like um it really speaks to um whoever did this at machine games that like there's some real talent there like real mm. genius at play um in how that in how these this particular mission i think it's called heart of the machine is is laid out and even things like the the amount of ammo it gives you and and things like that you're constantly existing at a level of scarcity so you're forced to use all of your um you know all of your weapons uh, at some point nothing gets left behind use your items to use your quad damage and of course they can also do things like like put like like what seems like 50 <laughs> like grunts in the area at once that you can blow up with your bfg and things like that so yeah i just um really um really knocked out by it and and like i would play a, a whole game of, of machine games making up making a, a quake two uh game because it just feels like they've they've got a real um verve for for what you can do with this pushing the limits of this of this really old engine by you know people who are clearly fans of the game like i was you know i think probably around about the same age as well like what they've been able to to do with it yeah so just just brilliant really 
Wow. I'll have to, I, I guess I'll, um, I'll skip the rest of the campaign and dive straight into that. Is that what you recommend doing? Yeah, absolutely. It's just so immediate, you know, and, and it's, it's better than the original campaign by several orders of magnitude. Right. The other um, campaigns that are there, which I think are fan-made ones or maybe sort of semi-official ones from years previously, are also really good. Um, and I would say that the, the the new one sort of draws more on them than it does on the does on the campaign. It really does reveal, like, the original Quake 2 to be, you know, kind of an almost, you know, classic. If they'd released this game back then, it would be it would be, you know, really mentioned in the same breath as as some of the very best in the genre, I think. And that soundtrack, bossing, absolutely great. I remember it gives me real, um, uh, don't come into my bedroom, mum, kind of vibes. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Are you masturbating well? From the Quake 2 soundtrack. <laughs> it's that good. Yeah. <laughs> A re- real, real Chad's masturbate to the Quake One soundtrack. Just ambient nightmares <laughs> from uh, from Trent Reznor. <laughs> have they have they done anything about the blaster, the default weapon? I remember as being one of the most unsatisfying weapons in FPS history. I mean, you just you still don't really ever use it. I mean, it, it they've they it is just the same shit blaster. Um, yeah, but I think they probably have sort of affection for it <laughs> now as as being so completely yeah. shit. Yeah, I think, I mean, even at the time, I think it felt intentional how shit it was. It was like, you know, you're going to appreciate the other weapons so much more because of this. Yeah. <laughs> well, also the fact yeah. that it wasn't a hit scan weapon, like it sends mm-hmm. out a flare that goes streaking over the enemies, which I think felt like a kind of weird, a weird flex, didn't it? Like to have this yeah. kind of yeah, light should... object that would move through the world and, and cast light as it went. Was it meant to be a flare gun? Actually, it does oh. kind of look like a flare gun, a sort of semi-automatic oh, flare gun, which they should definitely invent in the real world. That would be yeah. brilliant. <laughs> I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm <laughs> here. I remember on I remember on that game I would let I was like so knocked out by the graphics on it, on my like shitty four eighty six or whatever I was playing it on, that I would allow myself to be killed and then lie there looking up lovingly at the grunts like <laughs> idle animation while it stood there, you know, it would sort of look backwards and forwards and, and load its weapon and just think, Wow, this is the future. Look at this. <laughs> I was a peculiar child. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all were. Oh, yes. Yeah. If you think, I mean, I remember seeing um, Quake. I think the first ever issue of PC Gamer I bought had Quake on the front cover. And I remember looking at the screenshots of it and just thinking, this just looks mad. Like, this was like, you know, the sort of the journalists of the time writing about it with such like fervor and excitement and looking at the pictures and just like, this just looks so weird. <laughs> like, mm. what a strange bunch of people these are. <laughs> That, that was a time when mainstream games were weird. Yeah, just like a screenshot of a monster being shot with a shotgun and all the blood was just individual square pixels sort of flying out of it in this kind of mad medieval, like, a torture dungeon. Uh, yeah, yeah, just kind of very strange. Quake 1 is like, uh, you know, is, is it fantasy or uh, or sci-fi? Well, it's just, you know, the guy who's making chapter one like medieval stuff, so that's medieval. Chapter two is, is sci-fi because that guy <laughs> likes sci-fi. <laughs> they, um, I won't spoil it, but they directly reference the first boss fight from uh, Quake 1. Um, 
uh, from the uh, you know from the shower version, the big fiery boy boy in the in the pool of lava. Oh um, uh, yeah, in a way that really really made who, me laugh in this one as well. Who lives in a in a boss killing contraption? <laughs> I've set up shop between two death lasers that can be activated by switches in my home where I live. <laughs> I mean, don't we all live between two death switches? <laughs> Quite a lot of those. <laughs> That's the end of the podcast. If you'd like to send us a question, you can do so at questions at creightoncrowbar.com. You can tweet us. No, you can't. You can't tweet us anymore. All of these recordings <laughs> are uploaded as videos to YouTube, where you can find other stuff by us. The address for that is youtube.com slash creightoncrowbar. And thanks, as always, to our Patreon backers. You can back us too at patreon.com slash creightoncrowbar. Or you can simply join our lovely Discord community, the link for which is on our website, creatingcrowbar.com. That's it. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been, been Jamie Britton. <laughs> oh, we always do that. <laughs> uh, it can be fixed in post. <laughs> <laughs> I've been Jamie Britton. Are you, re- <laughs> are you refusing? To- <laughs> oh, did you want me to do mine as well separately? Yeah. (laughs) I've been Tom Francis. Excellent. (laughs) This is a shambles. Yeah. I might keep it all in. We'll see. (laughs) I've been Jamie Britton. Oh, God. We're stuck in a loop. (laughs) Uh.